The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. If you'll join me at Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6, and this evening we are looking at verses 10 through 30. In America, we don't place the same kind of emphasis on names as many people groups do in other parts of the world, or as many of our ancestors maybe have done in the past. Many children today are just given their names because the parents like how they sound, or it's a name in season, or you heard it on a TV show, or you read it in a book. So that's what we'll name our kids. But many of the names you read in the Bible are significant and they hold very special meaning. But far more significant than the name itself is often what a person's surname represents in terms of one's lineage. In America, the three most common surnames are Smith, that's number one, number two is Johnson, and number three is Williams. So if you say he's a Williams, Well, it's not necessarily that he's not notable or important or impressive as an individual. It's just that the name doesn't stand out. Now, if you say he's a Kennedy or he's a Rockefeller, more people will instantly have a greater sense of what you're trying to communicate. Now, of course, a person's name itself won't tell us much about the person's character or if they're cross-eyed or if they have bad breath, but it will tell us something sometimes about their place in society, or at least their perceived place in society. Maybe you were told as a child by your parents that you represent the family name when you go out into the public. That's an important thing. And presumably, the more well-connected and more well-known a family is, the more it becomes a genuine concern. Who we are in relationship to our family lineage is important. We learn that from the scriptures because God includes in the Bible many different genealogies. There are numerous genealogies in Genesis. The book of Numbers carefully accounts all of the clans of Israel. And First Chronicles has multiple chapters listing the names of descendants. In the New Testament, of course, in the gospel accounts, we see the genealogies of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ showing his lineage. Now, none of these genealogies are unimportant. No name is insignificant because every one of these names is a part of God's story. So whether you are Joe Johnson or John D. Rockefeller III, you have a place in the genealogy of humanity. And when we come to genealogies in the Bible, it's important to ask what these names prove. Sometimes they're intended to show the accuracy of the biblical record. Other times they're intended to show us how God establishes certain people groups and nations. Genealogies are also very practical. When we learn about the names that are mentioned, we learn more about what it means to be a child of God. They can often show us something about the character of God and his work of redemption. 
Many of the biblical genealogies are intended to show us the consistency with which God has worked throughout his people to bring us a savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We could look at many different reasons as to why God thinks it's important for us to have the names that we have in the biblical genealogies, but we cannot simply skim over them or move on if there's something more Uh, significant or more important that we just need to get on to. That doesn't mean it's any easier to preach a genealogy. Uh, This morning when Pastor Smith said to have mercy on him preaching the the passage from 1 Timothy, I was thinking, I have a genealogy tonight, same thing. But we need to discover God's purposes for including them in the Bible. They are important. And so in Exodus 6, we come to a genealogy. There are some strange names here, as you might expect. Some of these names will only be mentioned in the Bible in this chapter. Others show up repeatedly throughout the scriptures. All of these names are significant. Each and every one of them serves a specific purpose. So what is the purpose of this genealogy in the middle of chapter 6? Maybe you've read through Exodus before and you thought, it's an odd thing that this genealogy shows up in the middle of this chapter in the way that it does. We go from Moses and Aaron being rejected by Pharaoh, the Israelites just had their slave burdens increased, the elders of Israel are now rejecting Moses, Moses is crying out to God because he doesn't see any results from what he has done in obedience to God as he went to Pharaoh. He thinks maybe the Lord is, what is he doing? Is he playing a trick on me? Did he forget? Does he not care? All of these things are going on in the mind and the heart of Moses and the Israelites. And then all of a sudden, we're into a genealogy. What's going on here? Now, one might assume that this would be better suited for the beginning of the book. Remember we read about Moses as he was born and brought up in his childhood. Somewhere around there you would expect Moses having written the book of Exodus that he would have included it then. However, ancient readers almost certainly would not have had the same response because this particular genealogy teaches us something very important in the context of what's going on. So we're going to read through this. And please forgive me, as I work through these names, I will do my best. We are beginning in verse 10 of Exodus 6. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the sons of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. 
These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of their li- the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shemai by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uz- Uzil. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram beginning 137 years. The sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepeg, and Zekiri. The sons of Uzil, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithiri. Aaron took, on, took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Ammonib, Ammon, Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkan, and Abbas, Abahasp. I don't know. These are the names of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Well, these verses, verses 10 through 30, form something in the Bible, and we see it frequently. It's called, it's called a chiasm. I'm going to try and explain that to you. It's a very common form of writing in Hebrew and Greek traditions, and we see chiasms all throughout the Bible. You see it in ancient uh, Greek literature uh, quite frequently as well. Now, a basic explanation of a chiasm is a sequence of repeated or inverted components. So I want to try and help you visualize this a bit. If you were to draw a mountain like you did as a as a child, just like a peak, an upside down V. On the left side of the base of the peak, you can write the letter A. And then you go to the base of the peak on the other side and you write another letter A. Both of these A's relate to one another. They communicate a similar thing, maybe slightly different language, but it's the same emphasis. Now you go halfway up the peak and you uh, write the letter B. You go halfway down the other side and you write the letter B. And once again, these relate to one another. And then right at the top of the peak, you write the letter C. And that is the central point of the chiasm. So to give you an example of how this works out, we often hear really simple chiasms in political speeches. For example, ask not what your country can do for you, 
but ask what you can do for your country. That's a chiasm. Now, that one doesn't have A, B, C, but it's the sort of thing we're talking about. Or, we were elected to change Washington, and we let Washington change us. Another chiasm. Notice, it's the same idea. It's, this, it's the same language, but it's inverted. It's catchy. It's easy to remember. That's why they're so popular in speeches. Now, these are very simple, but hopefully you can understand something of what I'm saying. Now, in the Bible, we see these chiasms, especially uh, frequently in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, but more often than that, they are very complex. Sometimes chiasms can be entire chapters. They can be entire sections of Scripture, like we see here in chapter 6. Sometimes they can be entire books of the Bible. Some even argue that in, in one sense, the Bible as a whole follows a chiastic structure. And there are certainly reasons to believe that with many of the events along the way corresponding in the Old and the New Testament to one another. So here we have a chiasm. And in verses 10 through 12, we have part A, if you will. God tells Moses what to do. And Moses says, I can't do it. I cannot speak. I have uncircumcised lips. And then if you skip down to verses 28 through 30, God tells Moses what needs to be done, and Moses says, I can't. I have uncircumcised lips. And then back in verse 13, we have part B, a short narrative of what is happening. The Lord tells Moses and Aaron to get the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then the second part B is in verses 26 and 27, another narrative section that mirrors the first one. It is God explaining that the Israelites need to be brought out of Egypt and Moses and Aaron have to be the ones who will do it. And so at the peak of this is part C, verses 14 through 25. And this is the genealogy. Now, of course, this would be a lot easier if I could draw it on a chart for you. Uh, So I was reluctant to even try and explain it. But I think it's important for us to understand the structure here because it helps us to figure out exactly why it is that this genealogy is here in the first place. This is no accident. It is very intentional, and I hope it makes sense to you. Now, of course, it's neat to identify these things in Scripture and note literary structures when we see them. I am a literature nerd of the highest order, so this kind of thing excites me more than it probably should. But I'm not just telling you this so that we can sh- you, you have a new skill to show off the next time your office throws a pizza party. The chiasm actually helps us to understand why certain things are important in the scriptures according to the writer of the text. And why, it, uh, and why it is specifically in this one, why it's here in this part of the Exodus narrative. So the genealogy is the central focus of this passage. And it answers Moses' question from verse 12. Again, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, this is a concern we've seen Moses raise again and again. And it's his concern, bringing it up before the Lord, that he is not a well-spoken man. And so Pharaoh will not listen to him. So why should he continue to beat his head against the wall? It's not going to work, Lord. But the Lord does not back down. 
And the answer to why Moses is the specific man for the job is contained in this genealogy. Now, before we get to the answer, I just want to point out that it is Moses himself who wrote Exodus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, very likely, he did this well after the events here took place. He's doing this for the sake of the Israelites, and in essence, it's him communicating to them that despite all of his fears and despite all of his protests along the way, that he indeed was wrong and God was right. Moses was God's man for the job, and not just Moses, but Aaron with him. And by the time the Israelites would have read this narrative, it would have been after the Exodus, and so they could see that Moses was the right man because eventually what he told them God said would happen, in fact, did happen. But also, they could trust that Moses was the right man because of his family name, because of where he was from, and because of what he was appointed to do by virtue of his birth. The genealogy reinforces who Moses is and where he's from to support God's insistence that Moses be the man to do this. Now, this genealogy is very limited. It is mainly about Aaron, who stands at the center. We would think it should be about Moses. He's been sort of the central figure all along, but attention really goes to Aaron here. It doesn't include all the sons of Israel, just three of the 12. It also uniquely uh, includes the names of women. It's unusual in Old Testament genealogies, but their inclusion here is also significant. Notice in verse 20, It says, Amram took on his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Then in verse 23, we read, Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, you've probably heard those names, the sons of Aaron, uh, they didn't, it didn't turn out well for them, Elazar and Ithamar. Now, most of us are probably very familiar with some of these names and who these people are. But Aaron's wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab, uh, the sister of Nashon, which if you follow the family line means that she is from the tribe of Judah. Now bear with me, I know there's a lot to keep track of, a lot of names, a lot of tribes, all of this. Aaron and Moses are of what tribe? They're of the tribe of Levi. Now the Levites were set aside as servants to the priests. They represent the entire body of the people of Israel. The Levites replaced and represented the firstborn of Israel. So in that sense, the entire tribe of Levi served a priestly function. But only Aaron and his descendants had the priestly office. You've probably heard of the Arianic priesthood. This is significant because we learn from the genealogy that Aaron did not marry a fellow Levite, but a woman from the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah was the kingly tribe from which the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, would come. And so Aaron the Levite marries Elisheba from Judah, bringing together the priestly tribe and the kingly tribe. The priest and 
the, the priestly line of the Levites and the line of Judah from which our Savior would come. Notice also how Moses and Aaron are mentioned in the genealogy. There are 78 times I could find in the Old Testament when mentioned together, they are described as Moses and Aaron. Moses is the main figure, so it makes sense that his name comes first. But in verse 26, it says Aaron and Moses. We only see this ordering five times in the Old Testament, and each time we see it, it is in a genealogy. The point is that Aaron and Moses are true sons of Israel, and the priestly line will come from Aaron. Aaron's importance is confirmed by the introduction and conclusion of the genealogy. Part B of our chiasm in verse 13 says, But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And then the other part B, verses 26 and 27 says, These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts, It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and Aaron. Now, I know all of this is tedious. I had to work on it all week, but it presents a critical reality. The same Moses and Aaron who led Israel out of Egypt were the true sons of Israel, And Aaron was a legitimate leader in his own right and thus a worthy partner for his brother Moses. Up until now, the focus has been on Moses, who, as everyone everyone knows, is called to be Israel's prophet. However, as the story resumes in the next chapter, in in chapter 7, we are prepared for the older brother Aaron to take on an increasingly prominent role. One did not decide to be a priest. He, he was born into that role. Likewise, one could not decide to be a king. He wasn't elected. He didn't campaign for his position, so we didn't have to see all those TV commercials every other, every other minute. He was born into it. It just was. So all of this is significant because all along, we've heard Moses saying, I cannot go to Pharaoh. I'm the wrong guy. I have no right. I have no ability. I can't be the guy. You have to choose someone else. But the genealogy says otherwise. Moses, you're a Levite, and your brother Aaron is going to be the chief priest, and the priestly line will come from him. You are being called to do what priestly families do. You are exactly the kind of man who is called and appointed and born into this role of interceding on behalf of the people of Israel. That's what the priestly family is called to do. Now again, at the time of these actual events, Moses was unaware of the significance of his family line. He didn't know what the Lord was going to do in the future. We have the benefit of hindsight. But he wrote the book of Exodus after the significance of this would have been known. So he includes this genealogy to highlight that God in his sovereignty intended all of this just the way it happened to conform to the reality that would soon be obvious to all the Israelites. But the point largely is that they didn't need to know. 
At this point in time, Moses and Aaron didn't need to know or else God would have told them. What's so important is exactly what's at play. God commanded Moses and Aaron to fulfill the task, so Moses and Aaron had an obligation to obey. They didn't need to know the future of their family tree. They didn't need to know why God chose them. They didn't need to know about the the future of the priesthood or the kingship. They simply needed to obey. They simply needed to trust. This is often the way of the Lord, isn't it? He doesn't often reveal why he does what he does in the way that he does it until much later, and sometimes not at all. It's his design to impress on us through his providential acts in our lives that he is going to give us no other option but to trust him. Remember, remember last week we looked at seven promises that God made in his covenant to the Israelites. And now he's telling Moses and Aaron, go and do what I commanded. I will ensure that my promises are fulfilled. He doesn't tell them why. He doesn't tell them how. He only tells them that they are the means that he will use to fulfill what is already as good as done because he promised it. This is, in large part, the story of Job, isn't it? You may never know why things happen the way they happen. But what you can know is that God is trustworthy, his ways are good and perfect, and they are for our good, and they are for his glory. We all have things that we look back on in our lives, and we think, if I knew then what I know now, I would have responded differently. I would have made other decisions. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been so worried. I wouldn't have been so anxious. I would have trusted the Lord more than I did. We all think like that. We, uh, we wish we knew the future. We want to know what's to come. Maybe I can get a word from the Lord and he can tell me, should I take this new job or make this move? or go to this new location, or marry this person that I'm dating, or buy this house, or say the thing that I'm thinking right now, decision-making would be a lot easier if we knew the future, right? I wish I knew to invest in Bitcoin and Tesla about 10 years ago, but the Lord didn't want me to know that. He didn't want me to do those things. And so, do I trust him to guide my future? Do I trust him to fulfill his promises and to work out his plan for my good? Or do I assume that I know better than he does what I need and when I need it? That's really the question. Now, many Christians are crippled by fear. Sadly, many church leaders are crippled by fear and fail to do what's right or to take greater ministry opportunities because we simply cannot know the future. I often wonder how many more missionaries would be serving on the mission field were Christians more quick to trust the Lord instead of dwelling on all the possible ways their mission could fail. How many more churches could be planted if Christians acted more on faith instead of skepticism and doubt? How many more souls could be saved if we stopped saying, I'm not the man or I'm not the woman for the job and instead said, I trust you, Lord. Whatever the outcome is, I trust in your good providences and that they are far greater than anything I could ever know or understand. 
The fact that we don't know what's to come in 20 or 50 or 100 years too often keeps us fearful and overly cautious and we are prone to pull back from God's calling on our lives. But let's take a lesson from Moses and Aaron. Here, they can look back and say, you see, we were wrong. God was right. We were the right men for the job. We just didn't understand it then. If only we knew. Do you know how they should have known? How should they have known that they were the right men for the job? Because God told them to do it. They were a priestly family, and so they were the right men to intercede from the people of God. Even even though they didn't know it then, the Lord's designs were not haphazardly arranged or spontaneous. Moses and Aaron, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now, of course, the questions are understandable and their doubts are natural, but the command of God must supersede all fears, all doubts, and all questions. Now, another thing worth noting in this genealogy is how it's arranged. In verse 14, it says, these are the heads of their father's houses. We tend to think of families as individual units within a single home. We get married We start a new family, and the cycle continues with each new generation. Well, amongst the Jews, however, and this is certainly still the case in many cultures around the world, a family is considered much more broad. The head of the family is often the eldest father in that family, and all of the relatives who descend from him are the family. I learned more about this in African culture. If you ask many Africans where they are from, many of them will answer with whatever place, if a village or a town, whatever it is, where their father was born. That individual may have never even been to their father's village, and the entire family may have left long before they were born into the world, but the father is the head of the family, so that is where they are from. This all ties back and extends into into history. Now, for me, if someone says, where are you from? I just say, well, I was, born in, uh, I was born and I grew up in Colorado most of my childhood. I lived in New Mexico a few years, lived in Georgia for 20, and now I live in Florida. I don't know where I'm from. America. My father was born and raised in Iowa, but I never lived there. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> and I went there, sorry, Amelia. <laughs> I went there many times as a child, but I would never think to say I'm from Iowa. But the, the paternity issue is very important in the biblical narrative, which is obvious in biblical genealogies. There's a biblical principle here that God most often works through families. That certainly doesn't mean that a person's salvation depends on being raised in a Christian family. Many of us in this room can attest to that not being the case. But God will often bring glory to himself by beginning a new work of grace in a new family that will have lasting implications for future generations. But there's a a fascinating comparison to be made to show what I mean here. There is a reality here that God does bless Christian families. God does bless the faithfulness of parents. And God does bless especially the faithfulness of fathers. Consider the great American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards. 
still considered one of the greatest minds, if not the greatest mind ever produced in America. Edwards was a godly man who took a keen interest in the spiritual development of his 11 children with his diligent and godly wife, Sarah. Every night when Edwards was home, not traveling, he would spend an hour conversing with his family and praying for each of his children individually. His legacy includes one United States vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three United States senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, can't get them all right, and 100 clergymen. (laughs) Now, that's an incredible legacy. Now compare Edwards' legacy to that of Max Juke, as a man who lived in New York at the same time that Edwards was alive. A study of the Jukes family was conducted in the late 19th century, and it showed that at least 42 different men were in the New York prison system that were related to Max Jukes. His descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 other convicts, 310 who were homeless, 440 who were alcoholics and were riddled with disease and numerous other deaths. Of the 1,200 descendants studied from Max Jukes, 300 of them died of other than natural causes. Now, of course, we should not conclude that the faith of one's parents saves the children. God calls us as individuals to serve and to love him, and we all have an individual responsibility toward God. What we should see, however, is that God holds fathers responsible for the spiritual care of their families. The heads of the households in the families in this genealogy, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, had a God-given responsibility to lead their families in holiness, godliness, spiritual formation, and a love that overflows from the Heavenly Father's love for us. Every good father commits to help his household serve the Lord. In 1994, a study in Switzerland was conducted to identify the connection between the church-going habits of fathers and mothers and the effects on the children when they became adults and moved out of the household. It's a fascinating study. And what it showed is that no matter how faithful a Christian mother may be, if the father doesn't take responsibility for leading his family in their spiritual formation, only one child out of every 50 will make a public profession of faith and become a member of a church. If, on the other hand, a father is a faithful Christian who regularly attends church, regardless of the mother's faith, nearly two-thirds of their children will make a profession of faith and become regular churchgoers in adulthood. In fact, Even fathers who are not Christians but still attend church irregularly have children who are more likely to make professions of faith and become members of churches than those whose fathers have nothing to do with the church at all but mothers who are faithful Christians. It's fascinating. Now, most of you men who are here who have children are faithful, godly men who love the Lord and serve faithfully in the church, and I praise God for that. 
It's also very encouraging to see how many of our young married men that we have in this church are committed to being faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just wish you would find women and get married to them. That's another sermon. But the biblical and statistical evidence is the same. A father's faith matters in the lives of his children more than we could ever imagine. The Lord blesses the offspring of fathers who seek to honor him with their lives. This is a significant responsibility and we should never lose sight of it. It is by God's design. He blesses children who have faithful parents. The best scenario, of of course, is that a, a godly father and mother are living together in love and in unity to raise their children in the Lord. Still, the primary responsibility spiritually rests unmistakably on a father. A mother's role will always be primarily focused on intimacy, care, and nurture. That is not a relationship that a father can replace. But when a child begins to grow and mature and have more and more interaction with the world outside the home, he or she will look increasingly to their father for direction. If a father is indifferent or inadequate or absent altogether, a child's spiritual focus is greatly diminished and they are far less likely to be committed disciples of Jesus Christ. When children see that church is a women and children thing, they will respond accordingly by not attending church at all. Single ladies, keep this in mind. If you're dating a man who is only occasionally interested in spiritual matters, or if he has very little interest in the church, don't think that you're going to change him or think that things might get better. The effects on you are significant enough, but your future children will be significantly impacted should you get married. And of course, I I say all of this in light of the fact that God can and does save whomever he pleases, whenever he pleases, by his grace alone. But God is a God of means, and one of the most significant means he uses is fathers. And we can't take that lightly. Especially, I didn't know we had 11 babies on the way. I think I can count maybe eight of them. Maybe Carlos and Kayla are having triplets, maybe. I don't... (laughs) (laughs) he's shaking his head, big no. But this is so important, and not just in our homes, but for the life of the church, right? And for the the expansion of the kingdom. Think again, Edwards' legacy, all of these people that came from this, this one faithful man, all of his descendants, and all that they did for the good of society as a whole, but especially for the good of the church, and from them, how many, how many others were trained and brought up and, and evangelized and brought into the faith and, and missionaries sent out because of that influence? It's incalculable. It is vitally important that we take this so very seriously that one day when our genealogies are written and recorded for everyone to see that perhaps the Lord might be pleased to show that he used us in a most significant way. Now, if you take the time to study the individuals mentioned in this genealogy, again, some of them really, we we don't really know much about. But of those we do know, there is much to learn about what it means to be counted amongst the people of God. 
This genealogy is not only historically important, but also theologically instructive. Studying their lives can reveal significant insights into how God works in his people's lives and the way of redemption. Most importantly, in the biblical genealogies, we see the promises of the Savior to come. We see that Jesus, the Nazarene, is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I mentioned it already, but we see this in Aaron's genealogy. His wife is an ancestor of King David, and more importantly, the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the days of Moses and Aaron, God was working out his plan to send a savior to deliver his people from their sins. Nothing is by mistake. Nothing is outside of God's grand design. Aaron and Moses will intercede on behalf of his people to rescue them from their slavery in Egypt. The Lord Jesus intercedes on our behalf to rescue us from the slavery of sin and death. In that way, your name and my name are written into the genealogy of the family of God. So suppose your name was recorded for Christians to study a hundred years or a thousand years from now. What would they be able to say? Were you faithful to fulfill your calling as a Christian? Were you a father who looked after the spiritual well-being of your wife and your children? Were you a mother who cared for and nurtured your children and loved and respected your husband? Were you a child who loved and honored your parents and sought to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Did you take the opportunities that the Lord gave you to glorify him by doing all things unto him and not unto man? Working through your fears, working through your anxieties, and simply trusting him. Did you strive to live peacefully with all men whenever it depended on you? Did you fight to not grow weary in doing good? Would an examination of your family's genealogy reveal that even though you individually, maybe you have been surrounded by those who were thieves and liars and the sexually immoral, but you were zealous for the glory of God? These are all good things for us to consider and we should take them seriously. But more important than what other Christians We'll discover about our lives, we must ask, what does God say about us? Is your name written in the family book, the book of life? Do you believe that you, by Jesus' blood, have been written into that book and you belong to him by faith? You belong to Jesus Christ, no matter how faithful you are, no matter the faith of your father or your mother, no matter the Christian legacy of your family, you are only right with God and you can only be saved by the grace of God that he has given to us that by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand upon his righteousness instead of our own. Friend, if you're not a Christian, there is no way that uh, that. You can, you can hear what has been done, what has been accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And other than suppressing it or simply trying to ignore it, say that it's insignificant. If you're not a Christian, there is a way that you can be included in the genealogy of God's family. It's not through your works. It's not by renouncing your name or your family. It is coming 
to God in humility and believing that Jesus is the Christ. Putting all of your faith, all of your hope, all of your trust, and the entirety of your life in him. He's not going to examine your lineage and conclude that you're not worthy. He will not determine whether or not you can be his child because of who your father was or because of what your mother has done. He will not look at your own deeds and decide that they are not enough so you cannot be his child. The fact is this, that neither you nor your father nor your mother is good enough on your own to make you right with God. His standard is perfection. And I say it all the time, I have yet to meet a person in this world who claims to be perfect. And that is our greatest problem. We need to be made right with the perfect God. But we are sinful, we are arrogant, and we are filled with pride and hatred. We are not perfect. But by faith in Jesus Christ, the only perfect one who has ever walked this earth, we can be saved. You, my friend, can be saved. Will you look to Jesus? Will you trust in him? Will you believe the gospel? He will not reject you. He will not turn you away. He will not leave you to yourself when you come to him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And brothers and sisters, may it be that our legacy is that no matter what comes our way, no matter what challenges we face, no matter how anxious we may be, that we've trusted the Lord, that we believed, that when God commanded us to do whatever he pleased, we understood that he had a reason. And his reason may not have been known by us, but we trusted in his fatherly protection and his fatherly care, knowing that his purposes are far greater than ours. His ways are wise and infinite and we have been given every evidence that we need to know that his promises are always filled without exception. And so may the Lord help us to question him less and less and trust him more and more. May the Lord help us to be shining trophies of grace on our family trees. Even if the rest of the branches might be broken and dead, May the Lord help us to live up to our calling as a priesthood of believers and brothers and sisters, not just of one another, but of of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, our great high priest, our savior, our God, our redeemer, our mediator, our king, our faithful elder brother, and our nearest and best friend. May it be to him and to him alone that we live for all of his glory, that we might delight and call others to delight in the one who has given all for us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that for those of us who are in Christ, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God, that we have been included in the most important family tree of all, Lord, we thank you that we need not depend on our works, that we need not depend on who our father or our father's father was in order that we might be saved. We thank you that it is by the blood of Jesus Christ alone, that by your grace alone, 
by the faith that you have gifted to us by the power of your spirit alone that we have everlasting life. But we do pray, Lord, that you help those of us who are fathers to be faithful in what you have called us to be and do. That you would be pleased to work through us in the lives of our children. That the legacy of faith would carry on from generation to generation. That your name would continue to be glorified in our families. We pray, O God, for those who are not from Christian homes, that you might begin this work anew in their hearts, in their lives, and that there may never be another branch of their family tree that is unbelieving. We pray, God, that you help us to trust you no matter the circumstances we face. Help us, O Lord, to push through our fears and our anxieties and to do what you call us to do, trusting that you do all things well for your own glory, which should be our greatest concern. And so we ask, Lord, that you help us because none of this can be done apart from you. We need your spirit. We need your word. And we need to be reminded day by day of what we have because of the Lord Jesus. And so, O Lord, we pray that you do all of these things for your glory for the good and building up of your church. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Receive our benediction. May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, comfort you in all your afflictions so that you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which you yourself have been comforted by God, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.